Welcome to episode number two of the Preach and Persuade podcast. I'm Sam Parada, and this is... Adam Nesvold. <laughs> Adam Nesvold. <laughs> Did you forget my name? <laughs> no, I was gonna... I was hoping that you would pick up on the... Like, I'm giving you an opportunity to say your name yourself. Oh, okay. But okay. I guess I'll not. do better next yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um... If you listened to the first episode, you kind of got a little bit of an introduction on what we're trying to do here and who we are, um, just a little bit of a recap, uh, just to kind of go off of the title, Preach and Persuade. Um, this podcast is going to be focused on preaching the whole counsel of God, so uh, talking about doctrine, talking about theology, um, diving into the scriptures is our ultimate uh, source of authority and truth, and, and just, yeah, having fun with that you could say uh and uh hopefully you uh yeah learn some doctrine and theology from this podcast but also persuade uh persuading people to the truth so um it's very likely that you'll hear us say things that you might disagree with right away but hopefully if you continue to dive into these 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 topics these doctrines the, this theology and continue to study the scriptures and even maybe continue to listen to us if you're able to <laughs> uh don't, don't get annoyed that you will actually get persuaded to the truth um, that we see in Scripture. So that's kind of the yeah the the backdrop. What we're really trying to do with this this podcast. Um, and if you remember us saying we're North Dakota boys, uh, both uh, born in Minnesota, but now we live in North Dakota. Uh, so we uh, yeah Fargo Moorhead is our home. Uh, we both attend a church in Castleton, North Dakota, which is about 25 minutes west of Fargo. Um, and two weeks old, which is very exciting. Yeah, two weeks old. A very young church. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a fast, this church is a fast grower, so you would maybe look at it and go, hey, maybe that's a year, year, a year old church uh, based upon the people that are a part of it and, yeah, the maturity of the, of the members. Well, there's no members yet. It's so young. But... Mm -hmm. The maturity of the people that are attending and a part of it. So it's two weeks old, but it seems like it's older. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, you had a kind of a, uh, an icebreaker question f for us to talk about, just to kind of set the mood. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, what, what have you been studying over the last week? Yeah. Um, so for me, I'm currently doing online seminary through Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So my studying has been um, that, <laughs> you could say. I've ha I haven't had much time to study things I, w I w like personally wanted to study, but fortunately I actually enjoy studying the things I'm forced to study, which is the cool thing about seminary. Uh, so I've been studying a lot of Hebrew, um, but then evangelism and discipleship is another course I'm taking, so I've been studying... Um, methodology for evangelism, um, uh, how uh, evangelism changes in different contexts and cultures, um, and should it, uh, answering questions like that. And then I'm also finishing up my class. So I'm doing a final project that's uh, focused on uh, my personal evangelism um, in my community and through my church. So what do, how am I seeking to make evangelism a discipline in my own life and in my own context? Which is, um, it's fortunate that I, I am an evangelist vocationally, so it's a pretty easy final project. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But So I've been studying things that are related to that. Um, uh, yes, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, well, you're certainly gifted in evangelism too. You, I think you have that spiritual gift. It's, Certainly one that I don't have, uh, <laughs> but but it's very evident in, in your life. Well, thank you, Adam. It definitely <laughs> comes out. Uh, for me, I, I've over the last year and a half, probably close to two years, I've been on this uh, study of eschatology, and it's, it's focused into the Day of the Lord. And so I've been reading the books that uh, talk about the Day of the Lord. Most of those are in the Old Testament, and finish that up, and then. Uh, now I'm in First um, Thessalonians five, coming up on the end of that. So it's very uh, eye-opening. You know, a lot of people when they think about Thessalonians, they instantly go to the topics about eschatology, uh, you know, the rapture and the day of the Lord, and then in Second Thessalonians, the uh, man of lawlessness. But I think 
what we skip over a lot in those books is how pastoral they are. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of soteriology discussed in the first chapter of First Thessalonians. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think when you step back and you see the books as a whole, you begin to see how much care Paul puts into uh, his conversation uh, in that in those epistles with the Thessalonians and how he is he's talking to them about these eschatological things because he doesn't want them to be concerned sure uh, and so it's it's extremely pastoral even in that and that's yeah. part of the reason why the explanation on those is so brief he's like no just let me tell you why you don't have to worry about these things <laughs> and and then and then he his approach is that and that's why they're you know, those books themselves don't provide an exhaustive teaching on eschatological right. events. But yeah, and it's very interesting just kind of to kind of go off on that tangent just a hair here. Um, when you study cults and uh, new religious movements, they all have wonky eschatology. Mm-hmm. And they all really, yeah, it seems like ex- eschatology is just like a thing that people just like, what am I trying to say here? I don't even know what I'm trying to say. Maybe help well, me. Well, they, they definitely obsess over it. Yeah, they obsess um, over it. Yeah. And and I think I, I and like eschatology is, is something that's always fascinated me. Yep. And so I can definitely understand how people get obsessed with it because, I mean, certainly there are uh, definitely types of people who are more future oriented. You know, we see that even in yeah. uh, personality tests that come up like um, there's the Gallup or the Clifton Strength Finder test. And one of the talents that it calls out in people is futuristic. People who oh, yeah. are, are able to think about, well, how is, how is what we're doing now going to affect the future? Sure. Um, well, you know, as with anything, like, like we kind of discussed last week and we'll discuss this week, certainly there's – you can push anything to an extreme and when you do, it becomes false. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you push thinking about the future to an extreme – uh, you you can become obsessed with it. Like, well, when is Jesus going to come back? Uh, how is that going to happen? Do I need to be afraid? And, yeah. You know, when you start obsessing over these questions mm-hmm. instead of understanding that the second coming of Christ needs to be our motivator right. for evangelism. Right. Uh, and when you start obsessing about the, the future and, you know, going into things like the 700 club and stuff like, that. like those old shows from the 90s right like yeah. um or or trying to predict you know the, the probably the worst one is trying to predict when christ is going to come back or when the rapture is going to occur because i mean very clearly the bible says that we can't know right um and so like trying to pin down when these things are going to happen it, like people become obsessed with these things and then they can't get out of them and that's where we get you know, like you said, wonky eschatology and just bad theology coming out of it. Yep. All because they lose sight of the Great Commission right. in light of the right. Second Coming. Sure. Awesome. Well, I, I'm excited to actually ha- have our podcast, what, who knows what episode it would be, be focused on eschatology. That is going to be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it is really fascinating and important. Like, yeah. literally, Revelations is the person who reads this and... and Heeds this instruction, like, mm-hmm. like this is important to know this stuff, right. and we should study it. Yeah. Um, but if you remember from last week, we talked about the gospel. Um, we really hit on soteriology, how we're made righteous with God, uh, because the fact is that we are born into this world, separated from God, unrighteous, ungodly, unholy, desiring our own gain, desiring our own uh, flesh, um, living according to the flesh, which which is at enmity with God, and so the the whole question is, well, how in the heck can we be made be made right before God? Um, and so that's what we talked about last week. That's the gospel message. Uh, if you didn't listen to that, I would say you should go back and listen to that first um, before continuing in this one, unless you just don't care. Um, but well, to summarize, the only answer on how to be made right before God is Jesus Christ. Right, yes, absolutely. So we, we really hit on the, the fact that he did all the work in salvation, all of the work. And when we say all, we really mean all. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lived the, the righteous life that we could not live. He took uh, our sins on himself, and, and he faced the wrath of God. Uh, in our place, and if we were to face that wrath, it would result in an eternal damnation and hell. 
so he he faced that wrath and he yeah he he was punished in our place and not only that but when we um when we hear the gospel message it's the holy spirit the third person of of the godhead who actually uh makes our heart come alive and gives us this gift of faith in which then christ's righteousness is imputed to us so we do nothing really Mm -hmm. we really do nothing um and you hear some people say that Oh, I chose God, or I I was the I was the the ultimate, um, yeah. I I had the the primary will or volition in my salvation, and that's not right either. Uh, we see in in John one that we're not saved by the will of man or the will of the flesh, but the will of God. So it's God's will and choice in our salvation. Um, Jesus being the author and perfecter of our faith. We talked about that last yep, week too. Absolutely. So we can't emphasize enough that salvation is entirely a work of God and not in any way a work of man. It's very interesting. This is this literally just happened yesterday. So this is pretty cool. I do an apologetic booth at, at the North Dakota State University campus in the Memorial Union, so I'll, I'll rent a table. Um, and people rent these tables for all sorts of reasons, to like to promote an organization, to, to sell Girl Scout cookies. The Girl Scouts sometimes come in. You know, you can do it for anything, really. Mm-hmm. And so I rent the table to uh, put up a sign that says, got questions? We're Christians. Ask us anything you want about our faith. Um, and so I've had some tremendous conversations by just inviting people to come ask me questions about my faith. And uh, just yesterday... Uh, I had a guy come up. I think it was the first guy that came up to the booth. I do it for two hours. And um, I display candy bars to entice people. <laughs> That's not to say that I'm trying to rob the cross of its power with candy. Right. But nonetheless, sometimes <laughs> sometimes these people, it's crazy. Like you, you bait somebody in with a candy bar who really doesn't care. But then they'll like say, can I have a candy bar? And you go, well, you have to ask a faith-based question and then I'll give you this candy bar. And so then they, I give them a list of topics to maybe if they don't really have anything on the top of their head. So then they'll look at the list and usually the one that jumps out to them is evidence for a creator. And so like, oh, tell me about that then. So then I'll go off and then what will happen is you actually realize that, hey, they actually have opinions on this and then they start to dialogue with you. Mm-hmm. And so the candy does kind of bait them into that dialogue. Right. <laughs> Nonetheless, that's what, that happened last uh, yesterday, and um, I uh, I was able to transition into the gospel through that evidence for a creator question. Uh, really set it up with you know, are you fam- I asked the guy, are you familiar with how Christianity differs from every other uh, religion in the world on on salvation type questions? And he said, no, I don't. And so I started to tell him about grace and how we're saved not by works, but by a gift of God and by his work. So then I, I, I explained the gospel with them. And then I started to explain, really hit on, we are not saved by works at all. It's totally a gift of God. And so then he, being, he told me he was an agnostic, being an agnostic, not a believer, ha- not having read the Bible, says, wouldn't, wouldn't faith be a work? Because you choose it. And then I, I explain, no, it's a gift that we receive. God gives us this. And he goes, and then he, he says, so that means God chooses who he says. I go, yes. Mm-hmm. And unashamedly, I say that. Yeah. And so it's interesting that a guy, an agnostic, not be, not a believer, uh, unregenerate, hasn't read the Bible, is able to understand the doctrine of election by simply knowing me saying that we are saved by faith and not by works. Right. He's able to come to that conclusion on his own. Mm -hmm. And that blows my mind a little bit that Christians who are regenerated can read the scriptures, can see explicit passages on the doctrine of election and on you're saved by faith and not by works, know these passages, have read these passages, and still somehow resist that, that clear teaching in scripture when an agnostic can just put two and two together and realize that that's a reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I think, I think the doctrine of election, the reason why it's so hard is twofold. And I mean, and I mean hard for Christians. I mean, um, for, for many non-believers, uh, obviously they would, if you just went out and instead of talking about grace, uh, started just talking about, well, God chooses who he saves. Right. Yeah. Like, 
you're not going to win many people no. just just by starting a conversation is that right, way. Right, right. Um, because people will think, oh, you're just part of some secret club and it's exclusive yeah, and, yeah. and you're crazy. Um, <laughs> but I think for believers, the the twofoldness of, of how that the doctrine of election is difficult to swallow is, one, it's contrary to our salvation experience. Right. And two, it... Um, Pride is still present in believers. Yeah, and so when when you combine those two things, I mean, if if we think about our salvation experience, in that moment we made a choice to believe. Yep. That that's how that's how we understand it, uh, and and so we re, we relay that in our experience like even when we tell our testimony yeah we're like i believed yeah. at this moment or i gave my life to christ in this moment yeah um which implies that there was another option right which and and if we really dive into election i think there's plenty of examples in the new testament uh and even in the old testament that explicitly show that the choice was god's right right uh even when people chose to give their life to the Lord, the choice was still God's. Right. Uh, and I, I think that's very clear in the scripture and the conversion accounts that are there. Right. Uh, and But two, pride, pride just tells us, well, I have sovereignty. God created me in his image. Yeah. And that image part of it includes sovereignty. Yeah. And mankind has sovereignty. Well, these things are all true, but our sovereignty can never over there yeah it's, it's a it's a secondary it's underneath god's ultimate sovereign will mm-hmm. and ultimate counsel and right well, i mean we see explicit passages god works everything out according to the counsel of his will right uh and uh, psalm 139 he he like every one of them like every day that i live was written in god's book before there was any of them mm-hmm. like he has ordained my life um which means he's ordained those who you would save and we'll get into that another day because we're going to by for surely walk uh, through the doctrines of grace mm-hmm. and through Tulip. <laughs> right. we, we will do that. So if you're interested in that, just hang, hang on a little bit. <laughs> we will yeah. get into that. But all that, all that to say, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Uh, we will die on that hill die on it um but we're gonna really talk more specifically in this episode about false gospels mm-hmm. and so we we talked about the true gospel uh last week in the first episode uh we read from galatians 1 on this this idea paul is is, is really rebuking the galatians and saying why would you why would you leave this gospel? Like, why would you change it? Why would you depart from this gospel? There is no other gospel. And he's basically saying, even if I were to come back to you and preach a different gospel, let me be accursed. Let me be damned, basically, uh, because there is no other gospel. And mm-hmm. and that has to do with the fact that uh, the work of Christ is 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 set. He did the work. He he lived the life. He bear, bore our sin on the cross. There's no other way to change that. Like, the gospel message is based off of an explanation of real work that happened in real time. Yeah. And so that work is done. So you can't change it. And so if you if you choose to, uh, when you explain the gospel, if you choose to leave out some of that essential work or explaining some of that work that Christ did, then you're changing the message. And it's, it's, it's like there is no other message because the work is done, but you can choose to leave out certain things or add certain things in to make it more appealing to man. Um, and so that's the, that's the pitfall Paul is saying in Galatians one, you know, am I trying to please man? Am I trying to seek the approval of man? If I was trying to seek the approval of man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Yeah. Cause it's not a message that, that is good for man. Like it's not a message that, that it, man accepts. Right. And that's the point. Like, like, like if you're, if you hear some weird noises, by the way, there is a, a Rottweiler that... <laughs> yeah. I have a very young Rottweiler, and um, since we don't have a studio, and he 
Uh, he has some troubles. Uh, he's he's a fearful dog, and, and that, he does That's ironic. That he, seems like an oxymoron. Yeah, a, a, a Rottweiler that's that's fearful. Um, he was sort of a rescue. Uh, that's that's a long story, but uh, gorgeous dog. I always want, wanted a Rottweiler, and I got an opportunity to um, to get one that needed some help, and so I'm working with him. But he also can't be left alone for long periods of time, and so uh, we're recording. Um, at at my place and so of course the dog is present to help us yep um so you may hear thunder that's his name thunder make a whole bunch of noise yep. as he is doing quite well this afternoon <laughs> so that, that's yeah if you yeah those are the funny noises um but anyway what were we talking yeah yeah it's a and like we said this 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 message to the flesh is just People don't want to hear it. It's it's yeah. it's offensive. It's it's horrible. It's like I hate this message. If you're in the flesh, and that's another reason why uh, God chooses who He's going to save. Because if He didn't choose somebody and regenerate their hearts, then they would always reject that message. Right, and I, and I think this can actually lead us straight into the first uh, the first false gospel that. Um, well, we didn't have a specific order, but right. I think that, that these comments that we've been making lead specifically into um, the uh, the non-lordship gospel. Yeah. Because why is the message of Christ and God and the gospel so offensive to mankind in the flesh? Well, it's because mankind is so prideful that they do not want to accept an authority above themselves. And... Sinful man does not want to surrender uh, authority to the lordship of Christ. Does not want to recognize that that God is an authority above them, mm-hmm. and that and so to you know like submit has become such a bad word in our society. <laughs> yeah, uh, in so many ways, um, and it's become a bad word because people have abused power, mm-hmm. uh, and so. People don't want to give up their power, right? You know, I mean, I mean, shoot, this is even taught in Star Wars of all things. <laughs> you know, what 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 do people in power want to keep their power? Yep. So, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so we just took a thunder break. Um, thunder was getting pretty agitated. Uh, he needed to go outside. So if if we are uh, we're gonna try to pick off, pick up, pick up where we left off. If it doesn't make sense with our last statements, oh well, I'm just gonna have to deal with it. Yeah, we'll, we'll roll with it. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, we were talking about the non-lordship gospel that the, uh, yeah, that people don't want to submit to um, to the lordship of Christ, mm-hmm. um, and it, it is it is really opposed to the flesh to submit to the you know it's the flesh doesn't want to submit to the lordship of Christ, and so. What people will do in sharing the gospel message, and by doing this, they will then change the gospel, and it's now a false gospel, is they will it, they'll admit that part of the gospel which says that you have to submit to the lordship of Christ, mm-hmm. uh, and really how that's done is by getting rid of repentance. Right. And so, you know, ever most people are totally fine with having Jesus as your as their savior. Like, yeah, like, heck yeah, I'll have Jesus as my Savior. Like, why not? Like, why not? Like, cover my grounds a bit. Cover my bases. Like, oh, you say I'm a sinner? Yeah, I think I'm probably a sinner. Most people actually agree that they're sinful. Um, And, uh, yeah, I better cover my bases and just have him as my Savior. Um, Just, yeah. So, get that kind of get out of jail free card and be good, and I can continue my life how I want to live it. And, uh, yeah. There's no repentance, so mm-hmm. and we could continue in our sin because we don't have to repent of it. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as we claim Jesus as Savior, but that's not that that's not what we see uh, in Scripture at all, right? You know, uh, famously in Philippians two. Uh, Paul says in verse nine, "Therefore God has highly exalted." Him, being Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Um, you know, right there, that tells us that everybody will confess, every tongue that's ever existed will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't say that Jesus Christ is Savior. It says Jesus Christ is Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's um, that includes uh, humans and angels and demons. Uh, I mean, this is... Yeah, it, this is every this is everything. Everybody is going to confess right. uh, the lordship of Christ, and there, there's no option. There's no option. There's there's no getting away from it. Right. You can do that in judgment, or you can do that in worship. Yeah. Those are the two options. Right. So, um, other than the fact that throughout the New Testament we see the gospel of believe and repent, like repent, like you can't get away from that teaching. Mm -hmm. um, we also see it just in, like, for instance, Colossians 3 is a good example. Uh, starting in verse 5, it says, put, Paul is saying, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. And then he says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. So, you know, you used to walk in the in these sinful ways with these sinful desires, uh, gratifying these sinful passions. But now, if you're a Christian, you have to put these away. You put these away. You can't walk in them or practice them anymore because mm -hmm. um, of the wrath of God is on those things. Like Christ faced the wrath of the Father uh, so that you could put these things to death and be done with them and defeat them and not live according to them anymore like it, it's it's counterintuitive it doesn't make sense to receive salvation uh and then continue to walk lawlessly uh god saves us to conform us to the image of christ so that we can be united with god forever in perfect worship and perfect obedience uh god is making us perfect and pure and holy so it, it it's just it's just stupid and just dumb to think that I can be saved and then still live like the world. That's right. dumb. That's like, right. No, that's not why God saves you. He saves you to make you holy, to conform you, to have you put off these old desires. Right. You know, I mean, so many places you think of uh, Romans 8 that talks about that, of, of change. You think about um, Ephesians 6, which is obviously about spiritual warfare, but, you know, to put on the breastplate of righteousness you know, means like we are to put on righteousness. We are to, mm -hmm. to behave in a righteous way. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just there's, there's so many passages that talk about uh, fleeing from sin. And, right. and, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old has passed away. Yep. Um, just so many of these things talk about repentance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the life the life of a, of a believer is a life of constant repentance. Mm -hmm. You repent initially at conversion, but you also continually repent as the Spirit of God continues to show you your your hidden sin that that's been in your heart all this time. And, and as God is conforming you to the image of Christ, is continuing continuing to reveal these these hidden heart idols to you, so that you can continue to repent and move away from it and flee from it and put it off and put mm -hmm. it off and put it off. It's a continual thing. It's and that's what we. It's that process is called sanctification, um, being conformed to the image of Christ, being made like Christ, and we believe in progressive sanctification. So you you start this 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 process of sanctification at conversion, but then you progress in it mm -hmm. throughout your life as a Christian, as you continue to be made like Christ, be made more holy, until finally at glorification, where uh, Christ returns and you're given a new body that is imperishable like Christ's new body when he was resurrected, then and only then will you be, you could say, fully sanctified and completely holy externally and internally. So that's the hope that we have. That's the hope that the gospel gives us. Is like We have this hope that we will one day uh, be perfect inwardly and outwardly. We will no longer sin. We will no, no longer have a desire to sin. Uh, we will be perfect. Um, that's the hope of the gospel. Mm -hmm. So basically we've realized in this brief discussion that the non-lordship gospel is stupid and yeah. dumb. I mean, especially, and you know, we mentioned this, this last week, um, 
You know, New Testament refers to Jesus as Lord 747 times. You can't have a gospel that is biblical, biblically based and not call Jesus Lord. Mm-hmm. And, and Romans 10 addresses that very clearly. In, in Romans 10 verse 9, it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Mm-hmm. You have to, I mean, both of these things have to occur. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to make that confession that Jesus is Lord mm-hmm. and then also believe in your heart. Mm-hmm. Right. And those things happen because of regeneration. Yeah. Um, so that's the first false gospel. Uh, the second false gospel that we'll talk about is, um, let's see here. What one do we want to do? Let's do the works-based gospel. Okay. Uh, and this is most widely practiced by uh, Roman Catholicism. So the Catholic Church uh, teaches, indeed, and I, I'll say it, and a lot of people probably are going to get mad at me, but the Catholic Church teaches a false gospel. It's pretty plain. They they make works an essential uh, element into salvation, and so you could think of it as an equation. If you can visualize this equation in your mind or if you want to write it down on a piece of paper as I say it, basically – Works plus faith equals salvation in Catholicism, um, whereas in biblical Christianity, in the true gospel, it's faith equals salvation plus works. And so works are are an important thing. We don't want to diminish the necessity of works, but works come post-conversion. They are the, you know, a lot of people say it like this. I didn't invent this little uh, analogy or illustration, but... Works in biblical Christianity are the fruit of salvation, uh, whereas in Catholicism, works are the root of salvation. So the it produces works produce the salvation in Catholicism, whereas in the biblical Christianity and from a biblical gospel, works are the fruit of true salvation that comes only by faith. And we've already talked about that faith is a gift. And so Galatians actually is is written to address a very similar issue. Uh, when Paul wrote Galatians, he was writing to the, a group of people called the Judaizers. And they, what they were doing is they were starting to uh, uh, actually implement works back into uh, their gospel. And, and very specifically, they were uh, incorporating Jewish traditions back into their gospel. So they were saying that you... Yes, God, the, you're saved by faith, but you also need to be circumcised to receive salvation. And so they're adding a work into it. Paul is basically saying, heck no. And that's why he starts his letter like he did. Like, if anybody changes his gospel, let them be cursed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think it's important, <clears throat> before you dive into that, to understand that um, Roman Catholicism did not invent this idea of works plus faith equals salvation. Right. They didn't invent works-based salvation. They, um, you know, it's it's carryover from, you know, the, these New Testament times, which is even carryover from, from Old Testament times. Right. The idea that that you have to follow the Mosaic law, you know, the, the Ten Commandments plus all the laws in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy, that, that you have to follow all of these all of these rules and regulations uh, in order to achieve salvation uh, that was that was very common among among the Jews and it and it carries over in Christianity today mm-hmm absolutely so sorry I, in, I interrupted no your thought, no that's exact no that's it fits perfectly it's interesting this kind of is a story to uh, explain the how ancient this idea is mm-hmm. of works um, and interestingly every other religion that has some sort of salvation teaching um is works-based like islam if you're if you do more good works than bad works like you're able to get to the afterlife and here's my story i was in egypt um preaching at a conference uh last january and the last day that we were there we did some touring so we went to the cairo cairo museum the pyramids um 
uh, the, the old Cairo city um, with some of their older architecture and stuff. But nonetheless, I was at the Cairo Museum, which has all the Egyptian artifacts uh, from, you know, three, 4,000 years ago. And I was looking at the longest known papyrus scroll ever found. So this thing is long. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm going to totally botch it. You could probably just Google it. How long is the longest papyrus, Egyptian papyrus scroll? It's pretty dang long. Like, it's, if I'm trying to remember in my mind as I'm picturing it, it's probably like, like 20, 30 yards long. Um, anyway, there is a, there's a famous picture that the Egyptians used to paint a lot. And it's not only found on this long papyrus skull, but they painted this depiction a lot. And it's the depiction of judgment. And so they believed that when somebody dies, uh, they receive judgment. And what happens is their heart is taken out of their body, and it's put on a balance and weighed against a feather. And uh, you might have to correct me on this. I can't remember which way the heart goes, but if the heart I, I want to say if the heart rises up and is lighter than the feather, then your good works outweigh your bad works. And if that happens, then you can go to the to heaven, to the afterlife. Um, but if your heart sinks and the feather is lighter, then your bad works are more than your good works, outweigh your good works, and so then you're you go to judgment, you go to hell basically. And so thousands of years ago. They had this idea of somehow we can work our way to God or work our way to the afterlife or work our way to salvation. Like that was an idea thousands of years ago, from basically from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and they there was a very famous painting uh, that they would paint on their papyrus scrolls. And uh, it's, a, it's really interesting and really fascinating and helps prove this point really that the flesh, people in the flesh think they can be good enough. Yeah, we think we we can we think we can do it. I'm pretty good. You hear this all the time. Like when I evangelize, and I ask people, you know, why? You know, the hypothetical question: Why do you think if you were to die today and you were to come before God and you was to ask, oh, hey, why should I let you into heaven? Uh, uh, what would you say? And they like literally probably seventy five percent of the time, or ninety percent of the time, or more, I hear, well, I've been a pretty good person. Mm-hmm. I don't. I haven't done many bad things. I I try to do good things, and I think I've been, you know, pretty good. <laughs> it's very pervasive in our culture. Oh, it's everywhere. Uh, <clears throat> have you have you heard of the show The Good Place? Oh yeah. Okay, so a very popular show, and uh, so this might be spoiler. So if anybody's not caught up and they're just getting into it, fair warning. But uh, <laughs> it's it's very relevant to this conversation because the whole concept of the show is there's a good place and a bad place, and they take the things that you've done in your life mm-hmm. and they they assign a score to them and if you're if you have a score that is above a certain amount in the positive then you get to go to this to this good place mm-hmm. and if you don't then you go to the bad place so the idea being that you can even have a positive score mm-hmm. but if you're not in the best of the best if you don't have the highest score of of whatever then then they aren't then you don't get to go to the to the good place mm-hmm. Well, you fast forward in the show and you learn that, you know, these four main characters are actually being tricked and they're in the bad place because they were horrible people. Oh. Um, so, and then... I haven't seen it, so thanks. No, I <laughs> I'm never uh, going to watch it. But, uh, but what's interesting is the show flips later and this is, where, this is where it gets really interesting and relevant to our conversation. So the idea is that the four main characters are learning to be better people mm-hmm. so that they can eventually earn their way to the good place or find a place in the good place by, by being better people than they were when they, when they first died. Yeah. Okay? But uh, in one of the uh, seasons, I want to say it's, it's the third season, um, it's revealed that nobody has been able to go to the good place in over 500 years because people because people aren't good enough anymore because uh, um, all of their actions have un- unintended consequences. So, like, the idea being that, oh, you went to the store and you bought a tomato, which seems innocent enough according to human standards, yeah. but uh, that tomato was, um, was made by somebody who uses slave labor to, uh, to farm it, for example. And so then, then you have 
and oh all these goodness. corrupt CEOs. So you're supporting all of this. So uh, th- then you get like negative 10,000 points oh my on the scoring system just because you bought a tomato. Well, so the, the idea being that uh, being good enough is unattainable, which is so funny because a, um, a popular secular show hits entirely on the truth of, of the human condition before God in that being good enough is unattainable. Impossible. Impossible. But yet we have this, this you know, ancient idea that you can work your way to be good enough. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's just, it's not true. Right. So again, we have another example of secular, uh, secular ideas somehow hinting, like, like backing into and hitting on the truth, yeah. the, the truth of the, <laughs> of, of the word yeah. of God. Yeah. Like, let's, let, I'm just going to read a passage from Galatians chapter two, starting verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified or made righteous, you could say, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So again, I want to say through faith. We talked about last week that faith is the channel by which Christ's righteousness and good works, you could say, are given to us as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Just won't work. Right. Your your works, your 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 good deeds, your righteousness, they're filthy rags. Uh, they're, they're just, they're done. They're not even good works. Like you, you're seemingly good works. You know, when you w- walk that, uh, that old lady across the street and thought you were a pretty nice dude, uh, that's not good works. If you did not have faith, anything that does not come from faith is sin. And so that, re- I mean, that really shows us that when we are not in Christ, even the things that we think we're doing, they're still not good works. Right. Uh, that leaves us, really shows us that, good grief, you think that you can work your way to God? There's not, you can't even do one good work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the crazy thing about the Catholic Church, is that it's a church of billions of people. And a lot of them are actually ignorant, if you talk to a Catholic, or maybe you are a Catholic and you're listening to this. Uh, a lot of them are actually ignorant to the, the, the official teachings of the Catholic Church. Uh, this is actually laid out very specifically in the Council of Trent in Vatican I and Vatican II. They literally say that if like, if you believe in the Council of Trent, it says if you believe that salvation is by faith alone and not by works, let you be anathema. You are anathema. Same curse that Paul is saying to anybody that changes the gospel. They're saying that if you don't believe that it's by works too, then you should be anathema. And so really we kind of are taking our sides. If you want to... Uh, be a Bible-believing Christian, you have to realize that the Catholic Church teaches a false gospel. And the Catholic Church, especially the Council of Trent, they realized that they were teaching a gospel different than the, than the biblical gospel. So they are saying that, let you be anathema if you think it's only by faith. So it was back then, the sides were taken. And mm-hmm. the Council of Trent was a, was a, a counter-reformation council. So obviously, if you are familiar with church history, uh, the Reformation was when uh, really Protestants uh, reformed or people reformed out of the Catholic Church back to biblical Christianity, back to what the Bible actually says. So Martin Luther was you know, the primary reformer. And, and here's the interesting thing. Think about this. So what was, what was tormenting Martin Luther when he was a Catholic monk? was this idea that, okay, if if I have to work my way to righteousness, if I have to merit righteousness, then I can't ever really know how righteous I am. Because I really don't know uh, where I'm at on this scale. Let's say if righteousness is a scale from 0, 0%, you're not righteous at all, to 100% fully righteous. Uh, if I'm living this life where the tomato, you know, example where mm. I really don't know how that tomato was grown. And so am I, you know, what's going on here? Like it's, we don't really know w- what our motivation is all the time for doing some things. And so we really don't know how many good works we're doing. And we really don't know if this was a bad work or a good work. And obviously we know if you don't, if you're not regenerated, the Bible says that you don't have any good works, but nonetheless, the point is, is the, like, there's no assurance of salvation there. None. 
You have right. no idea. And it was tormenting Martin Luther. It was tormenting him. He was in agony trying to figure out how, how do I know if I'm righteous? How do I know if I have right standing for a holy God? And so what he would do is he would, you know, part of, part of uh, being made righteous and working your way to salvation in Roman Catholicism is penance and confession. So you go, you go to the confessional, you confess your sin, and then the, the priest forgives you, and then he, he gives you some things to do. Maybe it's some Hail Marys, or maybe it's this, and, and you do penance. And so when you do your penance, then you, you gain back a little bit of righteousness. And so he was constantly in the confessional confessing his sins far more than any other monk or any other priest or any other person, like, like hours and hours a day confessing things because he, he just didn't know. He wanted to know. He wanted this assurance. And then he opened up the Bible and he read the book of Romans and he realized, oh my goodness, we're wrong. Yeah. We're wrong. It's, it's clear. Salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. It's, it's by grace alone. Yeah. I, I mean, Romans is, is so clear and Romans has uh, such a uh, important place, that, that passage that, that changed Martin Luther's life. Uh, also brought um, Saint Augustine to to true faith, mm-hmm. um, and that that passage is Romans one sixteen and seventeen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for, for faith. faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And the in- yeah. <clears throat> for another f- at least four chapters, uh, Paul drives home this idea mm-hmm. that, that righteousness is based on faith and has always been based on faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he comes back to it again in Romans 10. To talk about it some more. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to read to you Romans 3, 21 through 26. So you, Paul's really hashing this out. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to res- be received by faith. Uh, re- propitiation really means uh, the wrath of God is getting appeased uh, on Christ. God is, a, you know, Christ is appeasing the wrath of God, um, satisfying the wrath of God uh, on our behalf, in our place. So he says, uh, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that the so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to jump to the very beginning of, of chapter 4. Uh, and then we'll, we'll read this. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And he goes, Paul continues, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Uh, how then was it counted to him? It was before, was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. I'm going to camp on that. So that's the point. In God's divine plan, uh, he made sure that Abraham believed him by faith before he gave him this this the seal of circumcision, which you could say is a work. It's a sign after faith. Um, 
And so then we we see here that Paul's saying that shows us that Abraham was not justified or made righteous by his work of circumcision. He was made righteous by by believing in God. Right. Um, and so in this this amazing plan of God, um, actually this faith that Abraham had, just like we today, post-Christ, pre-Christ, Abraham was looking forward to a Savior, and in God's, you know, power and, uh, and eternity and omniscience and, and blah, 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 he's actually imputing the righteousness of Christ to, to Abraham thousands of years before Christ, just as thousands of years after Christ, we are imputed the righteousness of Christ. Mm -hmm. So Abraham looked forward, believed in, in this coming Savior by faith. We look back, we believe in the Savior that already died for our sins by faith, not by works. Yeah, I think... Uh, the other the other thing that's worth pointing out is Abraham is chronologically before Moses. Yeah. Like by several hundred years. <laughs> so, you know, we have we have Abraham before Moses and it, it was at the time of Moses that the law was given. So all of these do don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this. You know, all of that mosaic law, which uh, is is ultimately a foundation for this works-based gospel, uh, comes after what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, look, before Moses even existed, we go back to Abraham, and how was Abraham saved? There was no law to save him. There, circumcision wasn't even a thing yet. Mm-hmm. So how how did Abraham become righteous? Because the Jews looked to Abraham as their forefather, the the the, the grandfather of of the of the uh, Jewish people, and so Paul is saying, well, Abraham was was righteous because of his belief, because of his faith, mm -hmm. and not because he was. Uh, he he fulfilled the Mosaic law or circumcision mm -hmm. just because of his belief and nothing else. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So to kind of give you like to wrap this up, uh, so Catholics do you know their official church documents, uh, Council of Trent, Vatican One, Vatican Two, uh, do teach that faith is, or that salvation is by faith and works. Um, those works are. The works of baptism, uh, confession, penance, the Eucharist, and the Mass. Um, that's why it's so important in, in that you could say communion or the Eucharist where you actually drink the literal blood or the, the eat the literal flesh of Christ. And we Protestants don't believe it's literal. Um, Christ's blood was shed once for all on the cross 2,000 years ago, and his literal body is in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of God. Uh, it's not appearing it, all over the world at the you know no it's it's a literal body it, a physical body can only be at one place at one time um, certainly God's spirit is omnipresent but the the literal body of Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father um, so it can't somehow appear in in millions of places around the globe at the same time on a Sunday morning service. Uh, so there's all these works that you do. And what I really want to say is that uh, what Catholicism does is it switches justification and sanctification. So we believe, as Bible-believing Christians, that justification is being made righteous before God. Uh, so we are given Christ's righteousness. If you want to think of that scale of 0% to 100%, through faith, we are made 100% righteous in the eyes of God, clothed with this cloak of righteousness that is Christ's. Uh, and then sanctification, we believe, is this progressive uh, where we are, like we said, putting off the old self, putting on the new self, living this constant life of repentance where we're actually internally being made holy within us. Mm -hmm. So you could say uh, we are given this external legal righteousness that covers us, that's justification, and that makes us right before God. Uh, but then through this, the working of the Holy Spirit in us and through uh, living a life of repentance, and uh, we are actually becoming internally righteous as well. That's sanctification. That's progressive. So Catholicism switches the two. They make uh, 
they make uh, justification this this progressive type process where you work your way progressively through through the sacraments um, and confession and penance and taking of the the Eucharist and the mass uh, you work your way progressively to a hundred percent external legal righteousness and because you never know when you're actually a hundred percent righteous and it's very unlikely that in your time on earth you'll actually work your way to a hundred percent righteousness you have to go to purgatory to get further cleansing and so purgatory is not found in the bible some say that you can uh you'll find it in the apocrypha but that's another topic where we can talk about the apocrypha books and how they're not valid um but that's that's how all that fits together so you flip justification and sanctification. Now, in Catholic teaching, though it's not biblical, they say they make justification a, a progressive thing. You work your way to, to complete righteousness, whereas we believe we are given the 100% total righteousness of Christ. It's mm -hmm. not our works. Yeah. You, you can visualize it this way. A pastor of mine put it so beautifully. He, he was a master of metaphors and similes. Uh, he he said that trying to get saved by works is is like taking a bunch of people and putting them on the shore in California and having them swim to Japan now nobody is going to make it right some of some people will get farther than others yeah uh, their 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 ability to swim, or in the metaphor, their their works, yep. Um, you know, will make them seem more righteous, right? Which is legalistic, just like the Pharisees, right? Yep. Uh, you know, so some will get farther than others, but all of them are going to drown in the ocean of their sin. Absolutely, and I want to even amplify that analogy because I've used a similar analogy when when explaining how we can't work our way to God when I evangelize. Mm -hmm. I say, yeah, I always say like, okay, I say I start swimming and I usually say, let's start in New York, let's go over to England. Mm -hmm. But the Pacific Ocean is even a, a, a larger expanse. Right. <laughs> um, I say, I make it five miles out. I cramp up, drown and die. Uh, and then I always say the person I'm talking to is a better swimmer. So I'm like, you make it 10 miles out, you cramp up, drown and die. And then Michael Phelps comes. He makes it 100 miles out mm -hmm. in the ocean, cramps up, drowns and dies, but he's not even close. And I go, you, no matter how good you are, you can't get to God. But then I like to say, but that's not even how the Bible describes it. You actually don't even make it, you know, anywhere, yeah. and you're dead on the beach. Yep. <laughs> a rotting corpse on the beach getting eaten by some seagulls, and God makes you alive. Yeah. And so it's it's like, you didn't even get a start. You're just dead. Yep. Um, oh, so we, I, I think we hit that home pretty good. Um, the next one that we want to talk about, and... I think we're actually going to leave it for uh, the third episode. So we'll kind of wrap up false false gospels in the third episode. But it's the prosperity gospel. and It's really an extension of workspace. Yeah, it's an extension of workspace. It's, 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 really, it's really an atrocious false gospel. And it's deceiving uh, millions and millions of people because, uh, unfortunately, this prosperity gospel is getting uh, shipped all over the globe, mm -hmm. uh, especially in Africa. And so I, I was just in Ethiopia in July, um, preaching at some conferences that were training some pastors and elders and, and youth leaders. And like literally, you'll be driving down uh, the street in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and you'll see a giant billboard of some white American in fancy clothes, you know, advertising him coming to preach. And you go, I bet you that's a prosperity preacher. So then, sure enough, I Google him, and sure enough, he was a prosperity preacher. I listened to maybe 10 minutes of a sermon that he had, and I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what he was trying to say because prosperity preachers just pre preach garbage and nothing that makes any sense at all. They just fill people with garbage, uh, and it's just a big show. So yeah, I mean, so my favorite quote about the prosperity gospel uh, comes from John MacArthur. <laughs> yep. And he said, if you're living your best life now, if you believe that you can live your best life now, then, uh, you, then 
then you you've completely missed the boat. I mean, he, completely. Yeah, I, I mean, he said it so much better. I, I think, we'll find the quote I, I, yeah. and we'll share it next week. Yeah, it, it was it was something like if if you believe you're living your best life now, then you're right. Yeah. Me, with the idea of yeah, you know, your next this, life is hell. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But but we'll find oh. we'll find that quote because it yeah. is. It is wonderful. Well, maybe we'll even spend the whole next episode on the prosperity gospel because there's so many little variations of mm-hmm. it and subtleties of it and, and people that you might think, hey, this person's pretty legit. No, prosperity preacher. Uh, don't follow them. Yep. And I, I'm going to get pretty fired up about this one. Yeah, and I, so I will too. Come back uh, for episode number three to see Adam and I get all worked up about prosperity gospel and uh, see if we can... Uh, kindle our righteous wrath and anger against this false gospel (laughs) but thank you for listening to episode number two i hope uh yeah i hope we're not annoying you but uh and i hope you're learning something so thank you for tuning in have a good day